Shabbat Shalom, everybody. Welcome. It is great to have everyone here. Thank you so much for joining us on this Shabbat morning. I think everybody knows me, but just in case, I'm Rabbi Heidi Cohen. I'm the rabbi here at Temple Beth Shalom. It's great to have you here. Just a couple of housekeeping things. Uh, just to let you know, if you need a restroom, they are in the living room uh, to your left behind the bookcases. There's a whole set of restrooms that are there. Um, God forbid there's an emergency. Whoops. God forbid there's an emergency. You can exit either through the living room or through uh, the doors to your right and then go straight through the glass doors there, and that'll take you to Tustin. But we're not going to have any emergencies because I just said that. So that's the goal. <laughs> Um, if you need anything, just please, you know, let me know. I'm, I'm happy to help in any way. Um, there's also water fountains that are right out there. So um, we are so honored every single year to be able to host uh, the CSP One Month Scholar and um, to have on, you know, on Shabbat morning to continue our learning and to be a part of, of this journey together. Um, Professor Mark Dollinger, how many of you have heard uh, Dr. Mark Dollinger over the past, okay, great, the, the past couple weeks. <clears throat> okay, so just very briefly, um, he holds the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Endowed Chair in Jewish Studies and Social Responsibility at San Francisco State University. So he's traveled a very long distance, <laughs> had to adjust to time and everything. Um, he's an author and expert in the fields of Jews and American politics. You want to talk about a, a, a very appropriate um, you know, topic for this time of year, for this time, for this time in our lives. Um, it's interesting. I wonder if Ari, uh, you know, Ari Katz, who is our, our great leader in our community scholar program, it, it, he must be a prophet because <laughs> he said we, he is. He, you know, we need to bring him down. Um, so fields of Jewish uh, Jews in American politics, American Zionism, and California Jews. And so I'm not going to read his whole bio, which you can find in, uh, in the booklet, but rather we're going to listen and learn from this, uh, this wonderful scholar, and he's going to guide us today, uh, especially about civil rights and Jews uh, in the 1960s, right? And so I really, I thank you, especially on this Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. What an awesome topic for us to share with you. So ladies and gentlemen, it's my honor to invite forward Dr. Mark Dollinger. Well, it, uh, it was 1972. That's my 1970s artwork. I look carefully on Google for it. I like the style. I was uh, living in the almost white suburbs of Los Angeles, and since we're in Southern California, if you can't recognize it, that's Palos Verdes, if there's any people from PV who are here. And uh, because we're in Southern California, I feel as if I can represent the next slide much more safely than when I'm home in the Bay Area. <laughs> yes, 1972 was the year that the Lakers won their first national championship. And that was the team that hosted Will Chamberlain, who was most famous before his Laker days, of earning uh, 100 points in a single game. That was be, uh, before the three-point shot was invented. But I'm pretty sure Will Chamberlain was not throwing three-pointers, so uh, he would have had the 100 points either way. And uh, you're probably aware where the, where the Lakers played. 
They played at Inglewood's Fabulous Forum. Now, now, of course, they're at Staples. They've moved over. I'm told that the Fabulous Forum is like a concert venue now. It's still around. It's still used. That's great. Uh, but I'll have to tell you that the Lakers were not the only team that played, the only basketball team that played in the Fabulous Forum. Because when I was in third grade, um, all right, well, that's not actually a third grade picture, but I just love that picture of me and my, my big brother and my mom that I just put it up there. Because the three of us went to see the Harlem Globetrotters play at the Fabulous Forum. It was fantastic. Um, this was, in those days, it was Meadowlark Lemon and Fred Curly Neal, and uh, it was so great. I loved it so much that when the game ended, I turned to my mom and I said the following. When I grow up, I'm going to be a Harlem Globetrotter. <laughs> and yet you all laugh. <laughs> because my mom, crushing my spirit and youthful boyish enthusiasm, said, no, you're not. <laughs> and I said, why not, Mom? And she said, because the Harlem Globetrotters are black, and you have to be black to be a Harlem Globetrotter. And at that moment, I realized that I was white, the Globetrotters were black, and it meant something. Well, apparently, uh, I was a slow learner, you see. Growing up at Temple Beth Ellen Center in San Pedro, a little bit north of here, uh, in the 1970s, I, uh, all right, in the 1970s, in, in the reform movement, we learned three things back in Sunday school in those days. The first thing we learned was that the Holocaust was terrible, that Israel was wonderful, and the highlight of our Israel education was the Jewish National Fund Buy a Tree in Israel fundraising drive. And I don't know if any of you would remember, you would get this cardboard card. It would have 10 slots for quarters. That's called, that's called cash. That's what people used to use when they bought things, right? And you'd put, when you got the 10, when you saved your 10 quarters and you put them in each of the slots, you would bring them in and you would exchange it for a genuine tree in Israel. And then the rabbi would say, may you go to Israel and visit your tree. And, and don't forget to water it on Thursday. Thank you, the rabbi reminds us. Well, all right, are we doing well so far? Because now it's going to start getting devastating. All right, I learned that you actually don't have your name on a tree in Israel until you buy 10,000 of them. Yeah, I know, that's sad. But that's not the saddest part. The saddest part is I walked into the office at the, at the synagogue once, and they had something there called a typewriter. It's from the old days. But I looked in the typewriter, and I found my Tree of Israel certificate in the typewriter. Yeah, it turns out it didn't come from Israel. It came from down the hall. Well, all that notwithstanding, the third thing we learned growing up in the 70s was Jews and social justice, specifically Jewish involvement in the civil rights movement of the 1950s and the 1960s. And this, of course, is the most famous picture of Dr. King marching with Rabbi Heschel. And I took all of that um, with me as an undergraduate at the University of California, Berkeley. And um, I don't know if we have any Golden Bears here. We might have a few Golden Bears. There we go. Alina, thank you. Um, this is where um, Mario Savio in the free speech movement basically, you know, changed the world with, with that movement that led to so many other social justice movements. Um, this is a place called Sprawl Plaza, 
and along its famed walkway, student groups would put their tables up. And they put flyers on the table. And you know, if you're, if you're an undergrad, you'd walk up and down Sproul Plaza. You'd see what tables were there, what, what's going on. You, you know, so of course, you know, I go to the Jewish student table. This is the Hillel table from Berkeley. I pick up all the Jewish stuff so I can get connected to the Jewish community. And then naturally, I went to the next table I would go to, the Black Student Union table. And uh, there I found my, my African-American classmate standing behind that particular table. And I announced to him, uh, introduced myself and said, let's start a black Jewish dialogue. And, uh, and he burst out laughing at me. And then, yeah, and then he kept laughing. And then at a certain point, I think he had to see the shock and the horror and the embarrassment and the humiliation on my face. So with some compassion, doing all he could to control himself, he said, he said four words to me. He said, hey, I'm from Harlem. And I knew what Harlem was. I, I knew that Harlem was uh, an African-American neighborhood in upper Manhattan, and I probably figured that you know, he grew up there and he came out to Berkeley for college. Um, but I understood that he was communicating something deeper in that particular moment. He was saying to me that uh, if you're African-American and you're raised in Harlem, you get a different idea about race in America than if you're a white liberal Jew raised in the suburbs of L.A., and the difference between our two historical experiences came to light and the moment I approached him and asked to start for a dialogue. Well, I think out of compassion, he said, um, if you're interested, I will pitch your idea to my group. He said, I don't think anyone in my group is actually going to be interested in it, but I'll do it. And I said, thank you so much. I appreciate the offer. Don't bother. And with that the Black Jewish Dialogue of Cal Berkeley ended in the fall of 1982. Shabbat Shalom. Good morning. Good to see all of you. Uh, we are here uh, to talk about uh, Jews' politics in the 1960s. Um, it is a book talk um, because I've just recently published a brand new book called Black Power Jewish Politics. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk you through the book today as we, um, as we learn, I think, new and different perspectives about what actually happened about 50 years ago. So um, half of you have heard me before, and a bunch of you probably know the answers to these questions. So here's the Professor Dollinger honor code. You can't raise your hand and answer a question that you already know the answer to. You can't whisper to your friend to give them credit. Um, and if anyone has read the book, Mike, um, you can't also <laughs> give that as well. So I'm just going to, um, this is Mike in the front, and he's read, he's read two-thirds of the book, and I'm just going to leverage you for every member of my family that has not yet read the book, and it's been out since May, so, so we will see from there. Uh, and I'll just say I have prizes today. So with that, the easy question, and raise your hand if you would, what's the definition of history? Oh, that's the easy question. Yes, and what's your name? Hi, Arnold. Uh, the story written by the winner. The story written by the winner. Such a cynical and accurate depiction. Yes. <laughs> right? Because the winners do, do write the stories. And this is something academic historians have to deal with. We'll, we'll just be more neutral and say the study of the past. But indeed, you are absolutely correct. And in fact, that's a good lead-in to, uh, to the more difficult word, historiography. Um, as, and I don't know if... Uh, Rabbi Cohen studied with Michael Signer of Blessed Memory, um, rabbi, professor at HUC in LA, and then he went to Notre Dame. But one of his favorite expressions, which I love, is, why use a monosyllabic when a polysyllabic will do? 
So in that spirit, um, the word is historiography. If you are for any former English majors here? A couple, all right, so you could trace the etymology looking at that if you want. So I want to put up their hand and venture what historiography means. You got to raise your hand though, so I can call on you, and then we could, yes, please. The writing of history, excellent. And what gives you that clue about the writing of history? The graph, okay. That, that, I, I know it's easy to you, but I'm going to bring the rest up to speed with your brain, right? So the, when you see the word graph, graph means writing. So historiography is the history of historical writing. Um, in fact, I, I think for both of you already, we have a prize, and that is that, um, well, I tell my undergrads, that uh, with ever-increasing tuition in public schools in California, I'd like to pay for their tuition bills. And when I get my first million-dollar paycheck, I'm going to do it, because I know I never will. So in the meantime, I'm going to give them genuine Jewish studies-themed pencils as prizes. Ooh, ah, yes. Even though none of my undergraduates know what a pencil is anymore, because they've never used one in their life. So I'm going to do my Phil Donahue Historiography is the uh, study of how historians have studied the past. Let me talk about that. You usually don't get this till grad school. Academic historians do not write history. We write historiography. Let's imagine that you are a white college student at the University of Mississippi in 1840. The textbook is pu published by the University of Mississippi Press and your week's reading assignment is the chapter on slavery. What's it going to say about slavery? Do you think? Oh, sorry, raise your hand if you can. Yeah. Well, who's going who's to answer that? Thank you. Economic importance of slavery. I'll get you a pencil afterwards. It is. Um, a positive good, that was a phrase they used in the 1840s. There are, in fact, eight positive goods to defend the institution of slavery. Let's put you a generation later, it's 1860. You're now a white undergraduate at UMass Boston, and their textbook is published by their university, and you open up to the slavery chapter. What's it going to say? Yeah. That slavery is a terrible thing, because Boston was the center of the abolitionist movement. Now let's imagine that you don't know nothing about anything. You put both those chapters side by side, you would have absolutely no idea that you're reading about the same historical event. Does that make sense? So what historians want to do in graduate school when you start is read every book about whatever the topic is and then say, oh, you're such an idiot. You have no idea what you're talking about. You need to read my doctoral dissertation where I will explain what the true history is. And then if you're good enough, you get a university press to publish your book. Then you get a job. Then you get tenure. And that works great till humility sets in. Because by the time all that happens, a new generation of grad students are coming up. And they're reading your book. And they're saying to themselves, oh, Dollinger is such an idiot. Uh, he has no idea about Jews and civil rights. And then they have to write the next generation book to take you down. That's what we do in academic history. And that's what we're doing today. Um, the first generation of historiographic analysis in ethnic studies and Jewish studies and most of any is called, um, here it is, filio-pietistic. 
Yeah, my favorite polysyllabic. Anyone? I'll give you a hint. It's from the Latin. Want to, anyone want to raise their hand and offer any piece of the word filiopietistic? Love. love. Thank you. Excellent. Get a pencil afterwards. It's literally love of one's own family, which actually means ethnic self-congratulations, which actually means aren't the Jews great? And uh, aren't the Jews great? The Jews are fantastic. You see, uh, if you read every book that came out in the first generation of academic books in Jewish studies, it doesn't matter what they wrote their book on. The thesis was the same. The Jews are great. And I know that because every three weeks I get the email with all the Jewish Nobel Prize winners. You see, that's called filiopietism. How about that? So the second generation, right, after the first generation is aren't the Jews great, what's the second generation thesis going to be? The Jews are terrible, right? And they're going to rewrite all the books on how great the Jews were, and they're only going to say it's terrible. The third historiographic generation? Oh, stop fighting. The truth is somewhere in the middle, right? And then they'll write the middle book. And then the fourth generation? Oh, you're asking the wrong questions. It's really transnational environmentalism you need to talk about. And then the whole thing starts all over again. So what we are trying to do in academic history is challenge the way we think about the way we understand the historical event, not what actually happened. Because I think pretty much at this point we've recovered. Unless somebody finds new sources, we've, we've, we've covered most of it. So I have a challenge for you. Uh, I have eight days left in Orange County, so you have eight days to say the following sentence in conversation. Filiopietistic historiographic analysis. If you can say filiopietistic historiographic analysis in conversation, you'll get a prize. But here's the, the trick. You can't show up this afternoon and say, oh, I went to a great lecture this morning and I learned about filiopietistic historiographic analysis. That's too easy. You have to have an ongoing conversation for which the phrase filiopietistic historiographic analysis naturally occurs. All right? The challenge has been given, and I just want to inspire and intimidate you. Yesterday, a member of CSP actually uh, fulfilled the mandate and received the prize, so uh, you can be the second person. Well, oh, Mike did this morning? Excellent. On a dog walk? All right, excellent. We will, we, at the beginning of the next lecture, we will, when we do the prizes, we will, we will reward you for that. And now the rest of you are challenged. Um, so, um, or you can go to, to the rabbi. rabbi. I just gave them all the big challenge. They have to use the phrase filiopietistic historiographic analysis in normal conversation. And if they do, they'll tell you the story and then I'll get them a prize. Right? Excellent. And speaking of which, Rabbi, I actually, um, I have a prize for you. Can you come on up for a second? Yeah. So they know that they get genuine Jewish studies pencils, and I will share with you that my students find it funny, but for two or three weeks later, they're kind of rolling their eyes at me. So you're not getting a pencil because you're the rabbi. You're getting a bigger prize. I actually have seven levels of prizes that I have to work through the 15 weeks to keep them excited about the prizes, and you are going to get the level seven prize. Yes, wow. and the level seven prize is the official Professor Dollinger pen. It's in purple, which is our school color. It's got which my, is my favorite you know, color. Oh, that's why we got it in <laughs> purple. My All right, and, uh, and and here's how it works. Okay. okay, so to make the ink work, you have to twist this thing, and then the pen comes out. Oh, okay, cool. But what I would like you to demo for the audience, if you would, yes. there is a cap on that end. It's hard to pull off, but if you could pull, just pull hard to get that cap. Oh my gosh, it's a 16 gigabyte memory hard drive. Who knew? Wow. It is like. 
Prototype technology. This is awesome. But wait, it's, oh, wait there's more. There's more. <gasps> Rabbi. What? Yes. This pen, if I may hold it back of for course, a moment please. for the demo, this is a metaphor of your career and your life. You see? <laughs> Here's how it goes. To be a rabbi in the modern world and a reform rabbi in the modern world is to look to the tradition while understanding that you're existing in modernity. And how on earth do you navigate between tradition and modernity? That's, that's the unanswerable question for, for, for modern rabbis. So here's how it goes. Okay. If you are feeling tradition bound, feel free to use this end of the pen to get ink and write a real letter on paper that you would mail with a stamp. Wait, how many of you have gotten those from me? <laughs> Wow, yeah, that, that is tradition okay. bound. But if you are feeling like you are in the modern world, you flip it okay. and it goes in your computer. You're all digital all the time. This is more than a pen. It's a metaphor for your career. That there you go. Awesome. Enjoy and thank, thank you for all that very, you do. Very much. <laughs> all right. Yay, Rabbi. History, study the past. Historiography, how historians study the past. And now we get to the third piece, which is um, historical memory. And, uh, uh, all right, actually, I, uh, so I'll do this first and then I'll go back. Historical memory turns out what happened in history, or what we think or remember what happened in history, sometimes didn't actually happen. Sometimes we kind of make it up. As academics call it invention. We invent history. Sometimes the actual event happened, but we interpret it, um, shall we say twist it, the way we want to see it, right, to get back to your initial comment. So historians, history professors will look at the past, look at how previous generations have written about the past, but we're really interested in what historical memory is, and that is you grow up learning the history or you think you learn the history, and then you dive into the primary historical sources and you sit in the archives for a few years, and when you're looking at all the sources, you're realizing it's not what they told me growing up, and then you figure out and write the book. So. Um, I want to talk a little bit about another role of being an academic historian. You never introduce yourself into your narrative. The job of the academic historian is to be a third-person detached critical analytic um, per, uh, writer so that when you read a history book, you should feel as if you have been transported in time and place to go to some place and live there, right? It doesn't matter about me or about who wrote the book any more than how well did we do achieving that. My uh, colleague at SF State is a medieval Jewish historian. So if you read his books, you got to go back to medieval time. I write on Jews in the 60s. It's a little bit more challenging because a lot of you were around in the 60s and have your own experiences and your own historical memory. And he just doesn't have medieval people yelling at him that he got it wrong, you know? So, I was writing this book, and, um, and the first two words of the title are Black Power. And I've got a, an African-American community, uh, communication studies professor um, who was in the classroom before me. So like we had an eight-minute conversation twice a week for 15 weeks kind of relationship. And one day he said to me um, that his students were doing their oral presentations on how they express their own personal identity in the world which I guess is appropriate for communication studies. I said, in Jewish studies, we never, ever talk about our personal identities. In fact, I chastise my Jewish students if they own that, they're, if they say they're Jewish in my class, because I don't want the non-Jewish students to think there's like two classrooms going on, the Jewish kids and the non-Jewish kids. I don't want an inside group and an outside group. 
I say, everyone, read the reading. See if you can write a paper on it. I don't care what your personal identity is because you're at the university, and this is not about being graded on whether you're Jewish. It's being graded on how well you can write. You know, we go through that whole thing with them, and this communication studies professor kind of laughs at me, you know, not the first time. And he said, you know, this is after several weeks of eight-minute conversations. He said, my blackness is on every word I write. And then a couple weeks later, he looked at me and said, oh, yeah, and your whiteness is on every word you write, too, except you don't have to say so. And then I realized the rule about academic historians not inserting themselves into the narrative is an expression of the privilege that white academics have as, as the dominant understanding of history. So I called my editor, and I'd done a few books with her before, so we know each other well. And I said, look, I've got to break the rule of academic history. I need to write a preface. The preface has to be my own growing up around race and race relations so that anyone who's reading what, how I'm talking about race and blacks and Jews in the 60s will be able to decide how much they want to give credence based upon what they know about my own background. And I said to my editor, I know that this is against the rules of the academy, but I think I need to do it. Is it okay? And, and we're being recorded, so I'm, I, I, will, I will edit a little bit. She said, Mark... You're a senior scholar. You can do whatever the F you want. But she didn't say F. And uh, I said, thank you. And um, if you read the book, it has the preface. And that's where I put in the Harlem Globetrotters story. And that's where I put in the Cal Berkeley story with the Black Jewish Dialogue. Because I'm now integrating that into history, historiography, and historical memory. And, and, and I bring that to all of us so that we can talk about that letter which may appear to be the letter Y. But alas, I would like to say that it is not just the letter Y. It is a representation of filiopietistic historiographic analysis. Can you believe it? If you look at the upper left-hand corner of the Y, imagine that that's African-Americans on the upper left-hand corner. Upper right-hand corner, those are the Jews. And you'll notice that the blacks and Jews are separate at the top of the Y. But if you move down, they come together in the middle. Isn't that beautiful? That was the Black Jewish Alliance in the middle. And you see, if they keep going down, they're marching together, and it's wonderful. Yeah. Every, thank you, Alita's already showing me what the next visual is going to be. But let's just pause on the why. Do you see that if you believe that blacks and Jews used to be apart, and then they got together, and it was so great, that whatever book you write is going to be the letter Y? That's the historiographic school of interpretation of black-Jewish relations. Except, and, and that was the first generation, by the way, and the journalists wrote that, and the activists wrote that, and that picture of Dr. King and Heschel, that's why. That's blacks and Jews coming together, marching, isn't it great? And it was all good, well, until the mid-1960s. Because it turned out in the mid-60s, oh, there it is. Alita, is that what you were thinking? Um, yeah, I know. That's a font thing. i got to get a new font. Somebody else pointed that out, too. We're getting, this, this is what we call doing a Rashi on the letter Y, getting really, really particular on what's happening. Let's imagine blacks and Jews are at the top, and they're separate, and they come together in the middle of the X. Let's say about 1954 with the Brown decision or the Montgomery bus boycott, Rosa Parks. You know, that would be a good moment if we wanted to pick one. And probably till 1964 with the Voting Rights Act, or 1965 with the, I mean, 64 with Civil Rights Act, 65 with Voting Rights Act. But after the mid-60s, blacks and Jews split again. And if you look today, I argue we're, we're apart. 
right? Can you see that? So the second historiographic school was an X. And it didn't matter if it was a local study or national study, or it doesn't matter what angle they took, they were either arguing X or they were arguing Y. So hold on tight. Black Jewish relations is probably not what you thought. And now it's time for congregant participation. We're going to learn our Hebrew word for the day. The Hebrew word for the day is cheruta. It's from the uh, root letters, which means friend or friendship. In traditional Jewish study, two people study in friendship, in cheruta, in partnership. So um, I'm going to put you in partnership with two people. Find two people. You can find three, but if you have four, break it into two groups of two. And uh, I'm going to give you a sheet of paper with a text. Except there's three things about the text you need to know. Number one, I have eliminated who wrote the text. Number two, I have eliminated the year in which the text was written, so you don't get any hint. And number three, because I did this talk for some postdoctoral fellows at the Hartman Institute in New York, and they were too smart. They understood that the way in which African-Americans were described, African-American black, Afro-American Negro, comes from different time periods, and they could locate the quote based upon that use. So I went through all of them and just changed them up randomly. So you cannot locate in that what the date is. Um, there's a few of them that aren't quotes. They just ask you a direct question. So if you get a direct question, just answer the question. But what you need to do is come up with who wrote it and when. Now, you don't have to know the name of the person, but what kind of person? What's the profile of the person who would say it? And what time in, in, in the history would they have said it? Does that make sense? So get you the Hebruta. I will give you this text. I will circulate around, and um, we'll get, get going. Okay, even if you're not done yet, that's okay, because um, we'll want to move it along. So here's the deal. There are um, um, numerous texts. Um, but there are multiple groups with the same text. Sadly, all of us won't have a chance to talk, only because the rabbi said I have to be out before Havdalah tonight. So, um, so we'll just move through, all right? And, and Okay, so we're going to start with text number one. And because not everyone has the text, I'm going to put it up there, and I'm going to read it. And then I'm going to ask you know, a group to sort of talk about how they process the text. So here's text number one. Black power stresses black initiative, black self-worth, black identity, and black pride. Black power seeks the growth and development of black economic and political power. It seeks leadership development. It strives for a form of separation which will permit it to achieve those goals and then enter into coalition with whites as equals. So um, I think you were group one in front here, or group one here. What did you? Oh, yeah, we, oh so here's the thing. Um, this is being podcast, so everyone needs to be mic'd as we talk. So the rabbi will have the mic, and she will um, hand it to you. Who has group one? Okay, here we go. Mike and Alita. Um, a white Jew in the 1970s trying to explain the black power movement to a bunch of scared white people. <laughs> All right. So, so the notion there is that it would be a Jewish person who understands that this is a quote that would probably make Jews fearful, and they're trying to reassure them. The quote wouldn't make people fearful. The movement would, and then the quote would be the reassuring. Thank you. And, um, and what would be the political background then of the Jewish leader who was trying to reassure those with that quote? Yeah, and... 
Would they be on the political left or the political right? I read the books. So I know the answer. So okay. I'm yeah. I, thank you. So Mike. But Mike he is, didn't. He didn't give me the answer. He just. I. I. Said. I. I, I, you, I. Your word is it's good for me. Um. I would say probably. I, I want to say the left, but that makes me want to say the right. That's so. right. So this is because Alita has been with me, and there's something called the correct and correct answer. And uh, the left is the correct and correct answer because that was issued by the American Jewish Committee in 1969. Well done, Alita. And the important part historiographically is that the American Jewish Committee is a center or center-right organization. And who would have thought that even in 1969, when tensions were so intense between these two communities, that the AJC would, be, would offer a public statement on how good and important black power is. When you're sitting in the archives and you read that quote and you see who said it and when, I'm thinking, something's going on here. So in that spirit, text number two. Who has text two, please? Uh, and wait for the mic. The mic will come over to you. There you go. Hi. Um, you, well, Text two. What is the position of the Anti-Defamation League on the Nation of Islam? And today is the Women's March, and there's been a lot of controversy about Louis Farrakhan and the Nation of Islam. So what would be the... Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Who has text two? I'm looking for text two. Two in front? A bunch of you should have text two. Do you have text two? Yeah, please. Right there. So we changed the answer a couple of times. Okay. Uh, um, the, uh, we think it's an anti-Semitic group who um, was spewing hatred of Jews and their influence. This is the Nation of Islam. Yes. Right. Okay. So what would the and, ADL say about that? Um, that's what the ADL would say. That's what the ADL Oh, the ADL would say it's an anti-Semitic group that's terrible and spewing. Okay. And... Um, we actually thought it sounded, because it says Nation of Islam, going back to the 60s, mm -hmm. um, the beginning with Farrakhan and the one that was killed, what's it, Malcolm X. Right. Um, so we, we kind of thought along those lines. Yeah, so there could only be one correct answer to the question on the position of the ADL. The ADL's job is to protect Jews from anti-Semites. The Nation of Islam was an anti-Semitic group. Therefore, the ADL must oppose the Nation of Islam. Do you know where this is going? All right. In 1959, Time Magazine put Elijah Muhammad, who was then the leader of the Nation of Islam, on the cover of Time Magazine. And it was a whole article about how, how bigoted, anti-white, anti-Semitic, you know, what a terrible guy he was. And uh, I found a memo written by the national head of the Anti-Defamation League in 1959 that was sent to every regional office and stamped on the memo was private, confidential, not for publication, which gets you excited as a scholar, because I'm going, I'm going to publish this, because I was allowed to, right? And here's what the memo said. Time magazine notwithstanding, we have no documentable evidence of anti-Semitism on the part of the Temples of Islam movement or Elijah Muhammad. Oh, wow. Thank you. I appreciate the oh, wow. I just want you to know for this talk, I have my wow-o-meter. I keep track, and my family asks me when I get back how many wows. So thank you for my first wow. 
all right? And I'll just say, if you're sitting in the archives and you read that quote and you say to yourself, as I did, oh, wow, I can't believe this, you're going, something's wrong with the historiographic school that's currently existing and they've kind of got it wrong. So let's look at uh, text three. Okay, I can bring it over here to text three. And this question is, what is the position of the American Jewish Committee on the Nation of Islam? And now I have to have my text number three, warning and admonition of the honor code. And this is to everybody. Do you kind of get what direction we're moving now? Okay, you are not allowed to change your answer now that you see how this is going. You have to stick with what you originally thought for the purpose of drama. So what would be the position of the AJC on the Nation of Islam? Well, my first thought would be that it would be, uh, the position would be, uh, against the nation of Islam for its anti-Semitism. Absolutely. This, this is the correct, incorrect answer. Well done. And uh, here's what happened. There was rumor in 1959 that Elijah Muhammad was going to give a speech at a northern New Jersey metropolis. I'll go with Newark. And uh, there was concern at the AJC that he was going to gather a whole lot of support in the African-American community of Newark, that he could be a threat. And they wanted to go undercover and surveil the speech to see what kind of threat he was. There were no black Jews in the Newark office. Um, and you can't send a white Jew into that room with a notepad and look you know, like you're surveilling. So in something that could be a little troubling if we think about it in the big picture, the AJC went to the city of Newark's Human Rights Commission, most cities have it, and they found an African-American man who surveilled the speech, which means we have a, first, we have a public institution during surveillance on radical thinkers, if that's problematic, and number two, they are now making an alliance with a private organization, in this case it's a Jewish one, sharing that information in order to see what they can do about radical thinkers. Well. The report said that he rambled on for two and a half hours in a speech that included references to Jews as Christ killers. So what would be the official result of the AJC report? They said they were more concerned with the anti-white statements and they did not consider him anti-Semitic. I'm going to take that as four wows. Thank you. And uh, what? Right. We got four wows and a what? And, and let's go with the what. The what, the what is the historiographic case. Like, this is okay. So my job now, sitting with this stuff, is to say, what, what's going on? Like, how on earth could this be true? Text number four, sorry. Let's go to four. Who, who has four? Who has, who has four? Thank you. Fantastic. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, Okay, yeah, so the text four, 38 black Muslims were jailed in Lorton, Virginia. They were, quote, forbidden to wear medals symbolic of their faith, even though Catholics and Baptists got to do it. What would the organized Jewish community say or do or believe when black Muslims in jail could not pray as Muslims? What did, what did, did, you, what did you think before we so got started? We, we felt that the Jewish community would support those arrested, allowing them to wear their medals. And on, on, on what grounds? Religious freedom. Religious freedom. Excellent. That is the correct, correct answer. The American Jewish Congress, Shad Polier, wrote a letter to the warden, which is to say, in the 1950s, when the issue of religious freedom comes up for black Muslims, 
organized Jewish leaders value religious freedom more than they're concerned that they're, that they're anti-Semitic. I would tell you today, if Louis Farrakhan's followers were in jail and having an upset about the religious freedom as Muslims, I don't think national Jewish leaders are, are going to be writing letters, um, you know, even, even with the new pen that you got. I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, text number five. Yeah, but it's, but it's good because even the incorrect answer is correct. That's why it's really nice. Bunch of, like three groups have text five at least. Okay, it's, it, it's like, that, that's what a five looks like. All right, I'll do, we'll, do, we'll do five together. The long-standing African-American distrust of white people, born of oppression, is manifesting itself in a growing spirit of go it alone. Blacks were already reevaluating their alliance and had already come to know their strength in political and economic arenas. This person predicted a period of mutual irritation and misunderstanding, followed by a spike in new and more active forms of black anti-Semitism. That's right now, right? That, yeah, that this, that this is really, the, this is like what Black Lives Matter, right? This, is, this, is, this could be a black, a black Lives Matter kind of era statement. Other thoughts on who would have written this or when? Yeah. Oh, and we need, sorry, we need to mic you just so they can hear. Yeah. I was thinking maybe mid-60s, early 70s, actually out of uh, New York. All right, mid-60s, late 60s, and, and who would say it? I was thinking it would be um, in the New York area because of the racial tensions between right. blacks and Right, so it's got to be in New York, because New York is a place where they, they would be on to the, the tensions between blacks and Jews, because there's so much that went on, especially in the late 60s, with the Ocean Hill-Brownsville, with the teacher's strike, right, with the rest of this. So thank you all for a beautiful, um, correct, incorrect answer, because it turned out to be um, the ADL, Nathan Edelstein, in 1960. There's two things significant here. One is that the ADL was onto this, but the more important thing was 1960. So let's go back to that text. In 1960, the ADL is predicting a growing spirit of go it alone. In 1960, blacks were reevaluating their alliances. In 1960, they're knowing their strength. In 1960, there is going to be a spike in black anti-Semitism. This undermines the entire historiographic school that puts the end of the, of the alliance in the mid-60s. Because the line we got in the literature was black anti-Semitism, black nationalism, black power rises in 1964, 1965. The Jews get kicked out. It's a terrible moment. And because of that moment, the alliance ends. And now we find out that national Jewish leaders, as early as 1960, saw it coming, knew it was coming, and predicted it which means something else was going on underneath the surface. Yeah, so text number six, okay? Text number six, a segregated system is uh, not merely an unfair system, but it's wasteful and inefficient, nevertheless. We do not believe a federal law to equalize educational opportunities by public subsidy should be used as a means to attack the segregated school system. So long as the law guarantees that states having segregated schools do not discriminate financially against children in minority schools, we believe the bill should be supported. And my colleague in education got this one. What do you think? Well, I think it's somebody who would support separate but equal the Plessy decision. But somebody in the 1960s 
Uh, somebody like George Wallace, perhaps. This is such an awesome, correct, incorrect answer. Thank you. Um, you're getting the level two prize because I know that you are also an educator high school. So I, I have to say that the, we had the fix was in on this one. So there's level two is the pen. There you go. Uh, enjoy it. And I'm gonna I'm gonna catch everybody up on what on what you said just so they understand. Um, the 1954 Brown decision said, separate educational facilities, even if equally funded, are, quote, inherently unequal, unquote, right? And by the way, they were never equally funded. But even if they were, that wouldn't work. The Brown decision overturned the 1896 Plessy versus Ferguson case, which was related to interstate transportation on trains. And the Plessy case, the Supreme Court said that if you had separate educational facilities or separate facilities for blacks and whites, as long as they were equally funded, you could. So here is a person saying, even though segregation is unfair, wasteful, and inefficient, we do not believe any federal law to try to change that should be used to attack Jim Crow segregated schools in the South. That's the reference. So long as the law guarantees that states in the Jim Crow South don't discriminate financially against the black kids, it's okay to continue it. And the only person who could have said this was Rabbi Stephen S. Wise. Just no, New York City, Free Synagogue of New York. Oh, but wait, how could it be? Let's explain. <laughs> rabbi Stephen S. Wise was the founding rabbi of the Free Synagogue of New York. He was probably the most important rabbi of his generation. He was personal friends with Franklin D. Roosevelt. He's most famous or infamous because he learned about the Shoah, the Holocaust, ahead of anyone else. And, um, and FDR asked him to keep his mouth shut for four months, and he agreed, and he's criticized for, for, for doing that. So I want you to know, this is not just some random rabbi you can dismiss. This was arguably the most important visible public figure for the rabbinate in his generation, and he did that. And here's how it worked. In 1945, after World War II, the Cold War began. Cold War now, the enemy is the communists, right? And... The theory was that schools, which are funded by state governments, are not going to provide the education necessary to build the scientists that America needs to build in order to go against the commies. Therefore, the federal government needs for the first time to send, I don't know, a gazillion dollars into public education to support the states so that the schools will be better and we can win the Cold War. Do we get that? It's very appropriate for a rabbi from New York to get on the train and go down to D.C. to the Senate Subcommittee on Education, which is where this was given, and say, we want more money for public education. And that's what he said. And then when he's finished, a couple Southern, white, segregationist, Jim Crow, George Wallace types pulled him aside. And they said, rabbi, or something like that. They said, uh, here's the deal. We think that if the federal government starts sending money to Mississippi and Alabama and Louisiana, that they're going to start sending rules about desegregating our schools, and we don't want anything to do with that. So here's your choice, Rabbi. We're going to have an amendment to preserve Jim Crow. If you support the amendment, the bill will go out of committee, and you'll get it passed. If you don't support that, then this bill will never get out of committee, and no one will get a penny for public education. 
Rabbi, what's your choice? And that was his answer. Now, this is called liberal gradualism. That's a fancy phrase which says, when you're bringing social change, you can't get everything at once, so you have to get what you can get, and you move in incremental steps. And that's what he was doing, and that's why he put that thing at the top, saying, look, I may not agree with Jim Crow, but if our choice is nothing or something, I'm going to take something. But here's my historiographic point. Dr. King was too young to have been in that room in 47, but let's say he was. Let's say he got that offer. What, was, what would he do? Would he take, would he take that deal? No. no way, because his whole point is to end racial segregation. So what we have here is Rabbi Weiss exhibiting what's called white privilege, that because he was white, he had the ability to make that deal, and if he were black, he would never have made that deal. And one of the underlying themes of the civil rights movement is, were, were blacks and Jews more similar or more different? And the historiography said they were similar, and that's why they came together. And he's telling us in 1947, before anybody was looking, that actually they're fundamentally different. And this alliance was rooted in a white privileged group against an African-American unprivileged group, and that that actually should be the way that historians and academics see it. Um, yes? Right, so I'll repeat it. So why, why would we expect Weiss to do the right thing on race relations if he didn't do the right thing with FDR? I'll just say when you're a national you know, religious leader like that, uh, you know, every decision you make you know, is going to be you know, put, put to that. So um, for text number seven, I know a bunch of you have it, but I, but I actually um, say, save this one for the rabbi. So, um, so I'm going to... Yeah, yeah, that's okay. No, we'll have them answer first, but then we'll have you answer second because this, this is a special one. I am tired of the philanthropy of rich white men towards your race. I want to see you fight your own battles with your own leaders and your own money. We white men of whatever creed or faith cannot fight your battles for you. We will stand shoulder to shoulder with you until you can fight as generals all by yourselves. What do you think? So this is... Clearly a sexist statement. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it, it, it appears to be a, a statement by someone favoring justice for blacks yeah. who want to encourage them to learn how to fight the battles themselves and get the experience and the know-how. So we know it's a man because of the sexism. We know he's white because he says we white men. And we know that he's trying to get blacks to sort of take over. Okay, Rabbi, what was your spin on that? Okay, so my spin on this is going to be, it's um, going to be a Jewish man. And I'm going to take a wild guess with it because he did walk shoulder to shoulder with them and he uh -huh. prayed with his feet, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. An excellent, correct, incorrect answer, wouldn't you say? <laughs> Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, who in 1965 prayed with his feet, is what he said, marched alongside Dr. King, and he would be the one who would understand everything here, which means that this was actually written in 1914. Yeah. Uh, Joel Springarn, the founder of the NAACP. He and his brother Arthur and W.B. Du Bois, the first African-American to earn the PhD from Harvard, in 1909 formed the NAACP. And in front of an African-American audience in 1914, he said, 
I am tired of the philanthropy of rich white men towards your race. And this is where the sexism comes in. That was a great reference to get us back to 1914. Well done. You were, you were like halfway there. I want to see you fight your own battles with your own leaders and your own money. We white men of whatever creed or faith cannot fight your battles for you. We will stand shoulder to shoulder with you until you can fight as generals all by yourselves. He predicted the rise of black power 50 years before black power hit. Uh, yes, he's Jewish, and yes. And, and not only Jewish, but as the founder of the NAACP, you could say the most important Jewish liberal of his generation. Right, that, that, that this is not, like, it's not like the professor went and found some person who said what he wanted them to say so he could say it in the speech, right? We would say that in 1914, there was already an understanding of racial difference and an already understanding of where it had to go. This quote undermines the entire historiographic field. Do we see how that goes? Yeah. members or associates of the NAACP know it was founded in 1914 by a, a, a oh, white Jewish guy. It was founded in 1909, pretty much everybody. I, I, it's, pretty, it's pretty common that it was the three of them, two, two Jewish brothers who were attorneys and then Du Bois. I need to hold off on questions now only because I want to get through to the end and then we'll take questions, we'll take questions for everybody. Oh, oh actually, I'm going to do a pause before we get to the next text. Thank you. I'm sorry. Um, you are doing exactly what you should do, but I've changed the talk around a little bit okay. because... Everything I told you so far is not why I wrote the book. I wrote the book because I was fascinated by the turn inward. The fact that in the late 1960s, American Jews became more Jewish, as it were. That the Zionist movement after the Six-Day War got huge. That the Soviet Jewry movement picked up in the late 1960s. You had kids who got kosher and they wouldn't eat in their parents' house because their, their parents weren't kosher enough, right? We're going to get into some of these details in a minute. And I was trying to figure out where the turn inward came from. And the first title of the book was Turning Inward. And it was only when I dove into Turning Inward that I started going backwards and finding these black power quotes from the mid-60s. Um, and then I kept going backwards, and then I found them from the 50s, and then I went back to 1914, and then I realized, oh my God, I've just uncovered something much bigger than I even imagined. So, um, so let's go to the beginning, which is text eight now. Uh, text eight, perhaps the saddest element in this whole frightening picture is in the fact that Jews are the people who are best able to understand the rhetoric of black power even though they are most directly on the firing line of its attack. And pretending that you haven't heard any of the reveals we've done on the earlier quotes. Um, who had that quote? Sorry, eight was number eight. Number eight, is all right? Got that So who did, originally, who did you think would say that? Oh, originally we thought perhaps uh, Rabbi Heschel. Yeah, Heschel would be a good one, right? Because he would be in it, and he would kind of understand and get it, and that's pretty close. It was Rabbi Arthur Hertzberg, 1966, which is in the middle of the tension. Hertzberg, a former congregational rabbi, his dad was fired from his congregation in the South for supporting civil rights. He wrote a seminal book called The Zionist Idea, which a lot of people who are studying Zionism have read. But I want to go back to this quote. In 1966, a Columbia University professor and rabbi says... Perhaps the saddest element in the whole frightening picture, and frightening picture means like, he understands 
What, he understands 1966. He knows the tensions, what's going on in New York. He gets all of this. He said, Jews are the people who are best able to understand the rhetoric of black power, even though they're on the firing line most directly of its attack. Most of the historiography said black power rises, purge Jews, Jews run away. That's, that's how the books were written. And I got a guy sitting there in 1966 who says, yeah, it's coming at me. And I get how frightening it is, and I get how this is an attack, and I get it's a firing line, and I get that they're hitched. But guess what? There's something going on here deeper that, that we're not seeing. And what's deeper is Jews are best able to understand the rhetoric of black power. And I thought, wait, this is a very different way of thinking about black power. So uh, who has text nine? Yeah, thank you. Uh, the positive aspect of black power is its search for ethnic identity. This we should be able to understand and approve. The American black today is in this respect retracing precisely the experience of American Jews a generation or two ago. Originally, who did you think that was? <laughs> uh, confusion. <laughs> um, oh, confusion is a great answer because that sound, it, the, the point is it's a confusing quote, right? Yeah, it, it is confusing. Um, I, I guess towards the end we thought maybe this was a, not a, a, a Jewish speaker, but perhaps more of a black speaker. It's so got to be a black speaker. It can't be a Jewish speaker because it makes no sense for Rabbi Roland Gittleson to say that. <laughs> okay. Well, he, he <laughs> And now we'll retrace this. All right. Well, first let's talk about Gittleson. Um, this is an important quote. Um, a critique of, when I, when I was working on the book, the critique of the book was, you're not actually tracing from the 50s to the 70s, because certain people rise up in the 50s and go away, and a new group comes up in the 60s and goes away, you know, so you're only really tracking the people that stood up. You're not finding one person and, and walking over the generation to see how it worked. You know, there's two different approaches. Gittleson, in 1947, was put on President Harry Truman's Civil Rights Commission, his White House counsel. He was one of the earliest rabbinic figures in civil rights. Temple Israel of Boston is where he came from. And then in the 50s, it was his congregants that went to the South and got arrested and put in jail at Parchman, Mississippi. And there's a letter of correspondence that the late Rabbi Krauss um, from Aliso Viejo put into his rabbinic thesis at HUC, and it's now a book published by University of Alabama Press, I recommend. And he is in conversation with Mississippi reform rabbis to visit the kids in jail and send letters to their parents and the rest of it. So he's in in the 50s. And then in the 60s, when black power rises, this man is old school. That's a, this is as good of an old white man picture I could find, to say if anyone is going to oppose black power, it's an old white man who is a rabbi who was rooted in the 50s and the 40s approach who would be most upset with what happened in the 60s. And he says, the positive aspect of black power is its search for ethnic identity. This we, and the dot, dot, dot is Jews. I took that out so that you would say it's someone who's black. Um, this we should be able to understand and approve. The American, and he said Negro, today, is in this respect retracing precisely the experience of American Jews a generation or two ago. He is watching black anti-Semitism. He's watching militancy. He's watching the nation of Islam. And all he can think about is these people are actually just like we were when we didn't have power. And I get what they're doing. All right? Um, 
text 10 is a direct question, which ethnic group benefit most from affirmative action in the 60s, just to play on our talk from the other night? Well, we thought it was a white person. I thought maybe it was a southern white person. Okay, so thank you. I'll give you a clarification. Um, in, order to, oh. in order for affirmative action, you have to be a designated minority group. I should have said this, and whites are not a designated minority. All right, well, based on everything else, I guess it's Jewish. And we thought it took place in the 1960s, questioning affirmative action, which was being talked about in the 1960s. Well, I see where you're going by saying, based on everything else, it has to be Jews, because you know that we're at text 10 and you see the trend. <laughs> Except that I said that Jews are considered white and whites were not a designated minority and therefore ineligible for affirmative action, which means the correct answer is Jews. Thank you. Well done. <laughs> How could it be Jews? Because women were designated an historical minority. And because Jewish women could benefit from affirmative action, and Jewish women were prepared for college, grad school, and professions, affirmative action programs disproportionately benefit Jewish women. Therefore, Jews became the greatest beneficiary of affirmative action. Therefore, the historiographic argument against affirmative action by Jews saying that meritocracy or the idea that, Jews are being, you know, that the Jews' rightful place is being taken over by somebody else is sexist, if not misogynist, to go back to the, to the theme that you had. And any Jewish analysis of affirmative action must be a gendered one, and it must embrace the idea that Jewish women were the number one beneficiaries. And if one takes a gendered view of the history of affirmative action, it totally messes up with the historiography um, on that particular idea. So um, here is uh, the freedom. Uh, so, when I was in the archives for my first book, I found a thing that said Freedom Rides 1971. And we know the Freedom Rides were not from 1971. They were from the early 60s. And I went through to realize it was actually a Soviet Jewry Freedom Ride. Um, and I thought, wow, that they're taking their lead from the civil rights movement. Turns out one third of the Soviet Jewry activists were trained in the civil rights movement. The leader of the student struggle for Soviet Jewry said, if injustice cannot be condoned in Selma, USA, neither can it in Kiev, USSR. Uh, I argue that there would not have been a Soviet Jewry movement if there had not been black power, because Soviet Jewry played on anti-communism. And if you want to get U.S. Congressional and Senate support of an anti-communist measure because Congress was not interested in helping Soviet Jews. They were very interested in going against the communists. So you want to play that to help Soviet Jews. You do it in 1954 or 55 at the height of McCarthyism. That's when you're going to get the greatest political support. They didn't, they didn't go national till 64, and they didn't start, Jews didn't start marching in the street till the late 60s and early 70s. Because in the mid-50s, the last thing white suburban Jewish folks wanted to do was out their Jewishness and protest in the streets. But 10 years later, with black nationalism and black is beautiful and black power and Jews aren't, don't have a place in the black movement, go and form a Jewish movement. And you're like, well, Jews don't need civil rights in America. Ooh, they need them in the Soviet Union. And what we find is many of the tactics and strategies of the Soviet Jewish activists came right from the black nationalist uh, playbook. 
So I will argue that the timing and nature of Soviet Jewry is actually thanks to black power. Um, in Zionism, um, after, the, after 1948, American Jews were pretty, pretty happy about Israel. They were relieved about Israel. But after 67, the reaction even surprised Jewish leaders. In New York, they raised 15 million bucks in 15 minutes. United Jewish Appeal doubled its annual fundraising. 7,500 Jewish college students called their moms, got their passports, and flew to Israel to support. National public opinion polls had 97% of American Jews showing strong sympathy for Israel. That wouldn't happen today. Why on earth did American Jews respond to 67 in such a dramatic way, even more dramatic than 48? Well, if you're a Jewish liberal leftist progressive and you're fighting for social racial justice and black power rises and the famous scene of a young woman who goes to Malcolm X and says, well, if you, a white woman, if you don't want me, what should I do? Go back to your community and organize in your community. Then the Six-Day War, 1967, was the perfect year for that. Jews had spent two or three years bubbling over with the end of that alliance trying to figure out where to put their energy and black nationalism was on the rise, and here was a chance for Jewish nationalism. So I argue that the Jewish nationalism wasn't so Jewish. It was really about America in the 60s, because only in an America of the 60s would the Jews have been that nationalist. Does that make sense? And it makes sense. Well, after 67, the University of California had their study abroad program, junior year in Israel. You can go to the Hebrew University of Jerusalem after the Mount Scopus campus went under Israeli control. So um, all these Berkeley kids get on the plane, you know, to go home to Israel, to be with their people. Yes, they were American hippies in Israel because once they landed in Israel and got on campus with their bell bottoms and their beads and their marijuana and their long hair, these Israeli students right out of the military, just out of battle, clean-cut hair, the, in, the intellectual elite of Israeli society, looked at them and said, you are freaks, right? And just, if you imagine that scene, the delta, the difference between the young Israelis and the young American Jews should communicate to the American Jews that what you're doing now is really American. It's really counterculture, it's really 60s, and you think you're going home to return, but in fact, you've just revealed yourself, indeed, um, as a foreigner. So, um, I'm going to... Skip through these really. Oh, yeah, oh, God, those are all the quotes that we already went through. Um, there's a Jewish ethnic and religious revival. Easy question. What was the most popular book published by the Jewish Publication Society in the late 60s and early 70s? It was the Torah, as the JPS should. What was the second most popular book written? The Jewish Catalog. The Jewish Catalog, which is, if you don't know, how to be Jewish using macrame. Arts and crafts. Yes, every chapter said how to bake your own challah, how to knit your own kippah, how to make your own talit. Because it was based on the whole earth catalog, it was a countercultural thing. And here's how it works. You only buy this book if, A, you want to be more Jewish, because it's telling you how to be more Jewish. You only have to buy this if your parents never taught you how to be more Jewish when you were growing up. So they buy this book to learn what their parents didn't teach them, which to me is, it has to fit in this era. It was so popular, they did the Jewish catalog too. 
the Jewish catalog three. They did the Jewish kids catalog, but they did not do the Jewish catalog four because by the time that, yes, exactly, you got it. By the time that years passed, the kids who bought Jewish catalog one grew up, got married, had kids, sent them to religious school, summer camp, day school. They didn't need no Jewish catalog to learn Jewish because they knew it already. So um, there were movements also on the right. The Jewish Defense League borrowed from black power even though they were a racist organization. They did for right-wing Jews what the blacks were doing for left-wing African-Americans. And Mayor Kahani, the leader of the JDL, was saying wonderful things about the leaders of the black militancy movement because he thought that the two of them were actually cut from the same cloth, one doing for the Jews what the others were doing for blacks. So the question now is, given all of the historical evidence you've seen, what letter do we use to describe the current historiographic school, which is certainly not filiopietistic, as you can tell? Somebody in an earlier talk said, use the letter H, and then they made a case for the letter H. I'm like, no. If I've used X and I've used Y, there's only one option. We're going with Z, so it's the XYZ talk, which is to say across the top of the Z, those are the blacks and the Jews marching together between 54 and 64. And then, oh, bummer, they drop down and break up and move backwards with the split, the split in the mid-60s. But then they march together in parallel back. Black separate from Jews, but each following the same strategy of nationalism and of, and of ethnic nationalism. So does that make sense? Excited about the book? I was excited. Then I went to have lunch with my dear friend, Ilana Kaufman, who is an African-American Jewish woman. And uh, we just chat about everything, whatever it is, and I'm chatting with her about the book. That happened to be when the Reform Movement had the 50th anniversary recreation of the Heschel King March from Selma to D.C., where 200 uh, white rabbis were going to go with members of the NAACP, with their Torah, recreate the march, rally for voting rights, all good stuff to do. And as Ilana opened my eyes up to, she's like, well, here was what it was. The Facebook pictures. You know, it was the NAACP and the URJ that did this. And we know what the Facebook picture is going to be. White rabbi, black NAACP member, Torah in between them. And it's not against these people. It's because all over Facebook you had, you had these pictures. And, uh, and Alana asks the rhetorical question, where am I in that picture? Right? What, what, what happens if you're a black Jew when you want to understand the nature of the black Jewish relationship? And uh, this book for me was how much of Jewishness is really Americanness, right? I mean, it's really 60s-ness. It's really black powerness. I'm, I'm trying to say that Jews think that what they're doing is Jewish, but it actually has more to do with not being Jewish than being Jewish. And I wrote that book, and I'm staring at a lot, and I'm going, damn, you've just undermined my entire book, right? Because now she's asking the question, how much of Jewishness is whiteness. How much of the whole frame of a relationship between two communities is actually not true if there's no relationship because it's the same person? How would I have to, she challenged me, rewrite this book through the lens of race rather than the lens of Americanism? 
And then, of course, I told her that now she needs to write the next book. She needs to be the one to say Professor Ballinger has totally messed up on it. So I decided, in a little bit of self-servingness, to make Ilana's story the epilogue. So I, the epilogue is, is how she challenged the, the whole book itself and how she's going to open up um, to, to new kinds of ideas. So, um, and this is Stokely, the leader of black power. On the surface, it was looking in the 60s like a whole lot of political change, but it really wasn't. Jews reached a new consensus, a new alliance uh, in the 60s and 70s. It was so different than the 1965 one of King and Heschel, but it was a consensus just the same. Shabbat Shalom. So first, thanks to the rabbi for going a little late. Here, I want to make a couple announcements, and then I'm going to hand it to you to decide what you want. So here's what, here's what we're going to do. It, this, um, uh, this is, it's a book talk. I'm also selling the books and signing them. And, and what I do, because I am already well compensated by CSP and the synagogue, is um, I donate back all the royalties today back to the synagogue. And uh, the rabbi has decided that the $35 book is now available for $25. So you will have a discount, and any money that comes out of it will come back to the synagogue as well, just so that you're aware. And I'd be happy to do that. And, and I'll just say, how much time do you have, or what, what do you want to do now? So what we can do is um, I went ahead and I moved the food that we had in the... Uh, um, back in the boardroom from Torah study, into the living room. So that way, Professor Dollinger can go ahead and sign books for you and answer questions, and you can have a little nosh, because it's a Jewish event without a nosh. Even Yom Kippur has a nosh at the end. So there you go. So um, why don't we take a couple of quick questions, because it's already you know 10 to 12. Yeah. Um, so we'll take a couple. I'm going to start right over here with Glenn. And then, then if you don't get your question asked in here, Professor Dollinger will be here until he um, yells uncle. Um, the only thing I would say is you gave us a litany of sort of cherry-picked quotes today, right? I mean, you are cherry, I mean, in a sense, they're cherry-picked. I guess the question I would have is to what extent, you know, is that indi really indicative or, or could we not find, you know, an, equally, an equal number of, of quotations that might support a different viewpoint. Right, that's an excellent question, and it was actually what Professor Joyce Appleby um, had on the first day of grad school in history, which is, if you go with a pre-existing thesis, and you, will, and you can find the footnotes that will back it, and you can write your book, and it will be a lousy book because you have self-selected ahead of time, because one could cherry-pick one way or the other. She said what, what a good historian does is reads everything they can and then lets the sources speak back. So I started the book uninterested in, in all of those cherry-pick quotes, right? I, I was somewhere else, and then the sources drew me back. So in that sense, I'm, I'm picking them because they are, they are typical. That said, I want to actually uh, honor what you're saying and tie it into the word historiography. This is not a book of history. It's a book of historiography, which means to properly understand this book, you have to have read the X and the Y schools of thought, because this is Z. And I am not going to spend precious pages repeating the X and the Y. I'm going to assume it's a scholarly book. So those who read it are understood to know the scholarship and know the historiography. So yes, I cherry picked them because it's Z and not X and Y. And because I was given 45 minutes that I took an hour on, um, I'm going to cherry pick here for the most drama. 
And because of that, I want to make sure I point out that Rabbi Stephen S. Wise is not some random person that I cherry-picked, right? And that this is the founder of the NAACP from 1914. Because as a scholar making an argument, I need to convince you that the sources I picked, or Stephen S. Wise for that matter, are from people of such import that you have to undermine the X and the Y and embrace the Z. If I would have given, if my best I could have given you today were like some random rabbi that no one thought about, then you're just rolling your eyes and going, well, what would Stephen S. Wise do? I, I told you what he would do, right? So ultimately, I rise or fall on the strength of that argument and, on, and whether or not I've cherry-picked. So I put this thing out there, and all those who would like to criticize my thesis are going to make the claim that, I, that I've missed the source, and here's a more important, and then that will be Ilana's book, right, in the next generation. I'll share with you that the first political, so I'm writing on Jews in the left, so the first uh, Jewish Republican conservative uh, scholar reviewed this book for the Jewish Book Council, which is the National Jewish Book Agency, and I just saw it yesterday. I'm like, okay, let's see what he said, you know, because this is going to be the worst one, and, um, and I really liked it because I thought even in his critique, he was acknowledging I was right, um, which is he said, look, this is evidence um, and documents that we've never seen before. This is where historical memory comes. They're in the archives, they were published, they're in, they're in journal articles, they were everywhere to be seen, but nobody has written on them. Uh, but then in the last paragraph he said, but American Jews will still not agree with all aspects of black power, and I'm glad Professor Dollinger at least said that. <laughs> and I did, because every chapter has a section on X and Y where you have to acknowledge th those parts, and then you have to undermine the thesis, so thank you. Okay. Uh, can you just clarify how many years truly repre are represented by the intersectionality and the X? It sounds like it may have just only been a couple of years, maybe three or four. And then with regard to your parallel, mm -hmm. uh, it seems to me that Alana is never going to find her place on as long as there's a Z. And on, unfortunately, what struck me as so sad in the beginning of your lecture is when you went up in 1982 to the black student movement's desk yeah. and offered a dialogue and offered mm -hmm. an intersectionality, uh, potential intersectionality, it was, it was refused. Mm -hmm. And until that refusal doesn't occur anymore, I don't think Alana's ever going to find her place. All right, so lots of great comments, and I'll give a three-minute answer to what should be a five-hour response. Um, the first question on when, what years was the Alliance active? All right, those are fighting words, right, for whatever answer I give. I'm going to argue 1954 to 64, from Brown versus Board of Education and Rosa Parks in 54 to the Civil Rights Act of, of 1964. Ten years is what I'm arguing. Um, I argue that Jews joined the civil rights movement. African Americans joined the movement for racial equality, which means Jews wanted... Jim Crow overturned, and that happened in 64, and Voting Rights Act, that happened in 65. African Americans want freedom, equality, justice, and the end of racism. That didn't end in 64 and 65. And the white liberals said, okay, you know, we're, we did great, now we're going to go back to the suburbs, and the fight continues. So I argue 10 years. Those from the X, those from the Y school will say forever, right? Um, dialogue. This, this is a sensitive issue. Um, Dialogue is seen by many in communities of color as a tool of white liberals to maintain the status quo, which is, let's talk, let's share, let's educate, let's hold hands, 
Let's have Quincy Jones write a song, make up a t-shirt, put our hands across America, it will be a great day. And no power will change. Social change happens when power changes. I'll share a story from SF State, then we'll end. Um, we had a young Jewish student, incredibly well-versed in the history of Zionism, and a young uh, Palestinian activist, and they engaged each other at a pro or anti-Israel rally, and the Jewish kid is coming at the Palestinian kid with all this knowledge, and they're trying to, he's trying to have a debate, and he says, let's have a debate, let's have a dialogue, let's sit down, let's talk, and the Palestinian kid says, can you give me Palestine? And the Jewish kid says, I'm 19 years old, I can't give you Palestine. And he said, if you can't give me Palestine, why do I want to talk to you? And he walked away, right? Now, we may, as those who believe in dialogue, and I believe in education, we believe in education as, as something, well, education is really nice, and if you're in privilege and you're in power, then, then education works well. But if you're out of power, the purpose of education is to bring change, and that's why that student was there at San Francisco State. He's trying to bring Palestine. And if I would have walked up to him in my 19-year-old version and said, let's sit and talk about us, he's like, I don't have time for you. I mean, you may have time for me because you live a very nice privileged life, but I got to go, I got to go, you know, create a nation state. So thank you all very much. Okay, so again... Professor Dollinger will be right outside here. There's food. Please eat it um, and enjoy. And um, go ask uh, other questions as well. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>